and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest today, I hope he won't mind if I describe him as one of the elder statesmen of conservatism. John O'Sullivan is currently head of the Danube Institute, which is based in Budapest and Washington. He's also editor-at-large of the National Review, and he's written for numerous international publications. He was also an advisor to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, um, thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. Um, John, uh, we don't hear in the press here actually very much about how the COVID thing is being dealt with in Central Europe. I mean, what is it like there? What, what, what is it like if you, on a daily basis? What is life like at the moment? Well, of course, it's different in different countries. Um, but in general, Central Europe has done pretty well, uh, really from the start of the emergency. By that I mean um, the, uh, the Czech Republic, Poland, um, uh, Hungary, and um, and uh, uh, Slovakia, but also Slovenia and um, Croatia and others. The the, the the death rates have been quite low. Right. Um, partly that's because the, the governments acted very quickly at the beginning of the emergency, particularly on restricting um, entry into. Um, particularly Hungary, and um, recently, although they, uh, the, the uh, most of the most of the regulations have been relaxed. Um, uh, for example, we the shops are open, restaurants are now open. Um, I think cinemas and theatres are opening next week, and uh, the and, and people still are expected to wear masks in shops. But uh, otherwise, as I say, things are fairly relaxed. Uh, but that doesn't apply to restrictions of uh, exit and entry. They've tightened up, right? And um, and, and most people think that uh, most people think that that's um, uh, it's been a success. And uh, of course, we all know uh, there might be a second uh, surge of uh, a second wave uh, of infections and presumably therefore deaths. But uh, for the moment, at least, um, Central Europe has seems to have done a good job. Um, and of course, far better, unfortunately, from uh, your standpoint, from of Western Europe, particularly better than Italy, better than France, better than um, better than Britain. Um, not, I think, better than Germany or Austria, which have got very similar performances. Right. And I think the Hungarians modelled their uh, actions on on Austria. In Britain now, basically, the coverage is now pretty much dominated by the economic results of all this is it, and basically there is a sense you know on one hand of we're facing almost oblivion and on the other hand people saying oh no wait a minute you know this is this will be fine we'll have a v-shaped recovery is it in your in in hungary is there that kind of discussion going on about the economic toll that's been taken yes and i think it's fair to say that the government has been straightforward about saying that there's going to be um, a recession following the lockdown when the lockdown ends and we start the, the economic recovery um, the, uh, i would be a somewhat optimistic actually because there are signs during there have been signs during the lockdown um, of quite interesting entrepreneurial activity right. particularly in budapest I mean, for example, uh, although the restaurants uh, all had to close and some of them just closed down and didn't have to do any business, uh, except um, 
you know, people selling pizzas and and um, and low rent uh, low rent um, restaurants, but they had very successful delivery food delivery businesses, and the the, the rest of the restaurant sector saw the success of these and it expanded right. um, uh, dramatically. The restaurants returned after about two weeks of lockdown and you could get um, could do takeout and carry out and, and get the food delivered. Um, and all over the city, when there was very little other traffic, uh, you, you would see these young people on their bikes whizzing around. They dominated the streets. And I think that they... Um, uh, I was talking to the manager, uh, well, the owner actually, of one of the um, uh, one of these food delivery services, and he said they had a certain amount of capital. So what they'd done is they'd gone along to the restaurants which they knew were in trouble and said, "Look, we're going to give you a decent loan here, so you can keep going." Right. And um, I said at the end, uh, we, we, he said to me at the end of it, "I think we've now got fast friends, people who will stay with us." And we have a second business, uh, or they have a second business. When they reopen, as they now have done, um, they'll get customers back again. But they'll also have a lot of customers who are going to be order over the phone. And um, I think our business is going to expand. Now, that's one business. But in general, I think there's a feeling that the Hungarians have reacted uh, with a certain amount of enterprise to the threat. So there's some optimism, um, as you probably know. Uh, before uh, the uh, before the before the epidemic, and before the lockdown, uh, there was a fair amount of optimism about the economy here. It had had three good years of growth, maybe more, maybe four actually, and uh, it was looking forward to that continuing. Uh, now, of course, we can only guess, but as I say, there's a certain amount of optimism. Yeah, uh, John, were you would you count yourself as a kind of COVID skeptic? I mean. You know, here, people such as Peter Hitchens or Toby Young, their general view that this has been a kind of quite catastrophic overreaction in terms of pandemics of the past. Would you would you go along with that or not? Well, um, that's my disposition in a way. But I'm also very cautious because I don't think we will know what the actual impact of the pandemic is really for another year. Um, I mean, for example, is there going to be a, a, a second wave, and indeed a third or a fourth? Um, much of the argument for the lockdown has been that there is inevitably going to be that. But if there isn't one, um, and if really the performance of the economy is badly hit by the lockdown, um, and people look, for example, to Sweden and say, yes, the Swedish death rates were higher than most of the um, uh, uh, most of their neighbours in the in the Baltic and in Scandinavia, but nonetheless their economy is recovered better. If that's what people think, I think we will be justified in saying that lockdown was too severe, um, wasn't properly thought through. But as I say, I'm a cautious sceptic. I want to see what happens in terms of second and third waves. Mm. Obviously, we've <clears throat> we sort of had a bit of a or would you call it a perfect storm? I don't know. But we've had the lockdown and then we've had over the past six weeks here, you know, what, what amounts to a kind of cultural onslaught that's been going on uh, ever since the ever since the death in America of George, George Floyd. I, I wonder what your view on that is, John, when you're looking at it from Hungary, when you see this happening in Britain, um, how seriously do you take the you know, statue toppling, the 
the protests that we've seen. How seriously do you take it? Well, I think I take it seriously, both in the United States and here. Um, and there's a good deal of interest in uh, Hungary about um, uh, this kind of the fiesta of anarchy that is spreading in both countries. Um, uh, I have written just, I've just written a piece actually for the Hungarian Review, um, comparing in some ways uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution of 66 um, with what's going on in both countries. And, and of course, uh, there are a lot of comparisons. I don't think I want to go into them in detail, but let's take one. Um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was in fact caused by the decision of Mao to take on his enemies who were ganging up on him after the failure of the Great Leap Forward and use, um, in a sense, invite young people to rise up, uh, embrace revolutionary egalitarianism, uh, destroy his enemies in the, in the party and in the university, in the professions, uh, which they did in an uncontrolled uh, and horrible way with murders, um, with beatings, um, with tortures really of um, professors, uh, doctors, anyone in a position of authority and quite a lot of people who were not in positions of authority. And that was all in a sense, uh, uh, Mao had the in, in mind that, that would re-establish his authority. Well, it did. Um, he defeated his enemies. Um, and after a while, they got control back of the his own revolutionary student supporters. Um, but of course, it was a temporary victory. Uh, Mao was the, uh, Maoism was in effect defeated after his death um, when the Gang of Fourth collapsed. And, um, and so... Um, uh, and, and then there was the complete reversal of Mao's policy with the arrival of Deng Xiaoping and his decision to, um, in a sense, take a capitalist road. Now, uh, if you look at what's happening in America and Britain, you see um, something, I think, similar. You, what you have is a huge cultural clash between, on the one hand, the present administration, the Trump administration, and its support in the country, and you have the uh, opposition, which is widespread and which is both democratic on the one hand and revolutionary on the other. And the people in authority, so to speak, the Democrats, and uh, are turning a blind eye very often, well, turning a blind eye quite a lot, uh, to these uh, the attacks on to the burning of buildings, the attacks on people, uh, in hoping that this is going, in a sense, to help to bring about um, the defeat of Trump, which it may do, um, and, the, and the election of a democratic um, uh, president. Now, um, that may be at a very high cost, uh, uh, and it may not succeed. I think in Britain, uh, a lot of people who were angry with the, uh, with the Boris Johnson Tory party and government uh, over, Bre over Brexit have used this opportunity as well to um, encourage uh, people to, in a sense, reject it. I don't think we can say that this is entire, this is really a struggle for racial justice. Um, in America, it's damaged the uh, minority and poor communities. It's destroyed their small businesses, the people. Um, and now, now what you have is a kind of attempt to purge anybody who's expressed um, um, I would say, well, express what I would call colorblind yeah. anti-racism. Such people are now being denounced as racists and not conservatives, 
mainly, mainly actually not conservatives, mainly liberals. Yeah. And the attacks attempt to purge newspapers of, um, of people and try to, Andrew Sullivan, for example, probably the single best political writer in America today has effectively been let go. Maybe, maybe he voluntarily disappeared because he could see something coming. Let go from New York Magazine. That's an incredibly bad decision yes. by New York Magazine, and it's a disservice to their readers. So I think everywhere what you see is um, a tolerance, a tolerance of violence and of um, dogmatic extremism um, by um, some of the authorities in order to defeat their political enemies. And, uh, um, and, I, 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 and I don't think in the end those tactics will succeed in Britain. At the moment, you can't, you can't say they may not succeed in the United States. Trump looks as though he's in serious trouble. <clears throat> do you, what do you think of the view, uh, John, which uh, I think you sort of touched on there, but that essentially the nature of this thing happening is, is quite different in that it is almost an uprising by people who are irritated at being disagreed with. I, you know, you've had Brexit in, in Britain, you've got Trump in America, and they still, they are f out for revenge, basically. Because, you know, all of this is happening, not okay, we're seeing it on the streets, but what is most striking is the way that the institutions are just simply, you know, crumbling. I mean, the way that they are, in fact, just giving in and sacking people or cancelling them. Yes. Um, I think one of the um, problems is in, in, in all of these revolutions, what you have is a statement um, uh, which is which people want to represent the society in future. It's a kind of demand that we all assent to a particular uh, set of ideas. And the ideas in the United States, it's clearer and sharper there than in Britain. The ideas there are as follows. Um, we are asked to say black lives matter uh, without any qualification or without recognizing that black lives matter because all lives matter. Well, and as, as a statement that America at present, um, America as we've known it, is a, a, racial, a racially unjust society uh, governed by white supremacist institutions. Now, to say that uh, that society, the society described as, as a fun, fundamentally racist and white supremacist, that society twice elected Barack Obama as its president. It is simply absurd. One could say in moral terms, it's a wicked lie to describe America in those terms. Yet once you stand up and say uh, Black Lives Matter, not because you want to assert that wrong has been done to black people and it should be remedied, but because you want uh, to transform society um, to, uh, to reverse uh, the fundamental racial injustice and to reverse white supremacy, once you've signed on to that, then you've signed on to a whole set of other ideas. And if you're a newspaper like the New York Times, um, and somebody says, well, um, if, we're a non if we're a fundamentally racist society, um, why are we running articles by Republicans who are supporting this society? Yeah, yeah. Um, we can't have that. And um, senior members of the paper might stand up and say, look, traditionally, we in, journal in, in liberal journalism, 
We've always insisted that all sides uh, deserve to be heard, that um, we believe in general, general, genuine debate. Um, and we, if we don't include half of the country in that debate, it can hardly be called a debate, let alone genuine. And at that, when they say that, they're swept aside by angry, young, uh, passionate, quote, idealists um, who, who have decided that any, any resistance, any qualification to the idea of uh, this fundamental injustice is therefore, uh, it's unacceptable. Uh, you are, if you express qualifications of that kind, people say you're a racist. And if you're a racist, we don't want to listen to you. We're not going to, we regard you as being on the wrong side of a moral barrier. Not someone expressing disagreement, but on the wrong side of a moral barrier. And, and, and on that side uh, are the lost. They are finished. We, we want nothing to do with them. So that's the problem. Um, once you, in a sense, elevate this idea, a, any idea, any one idea, to the central truth in, of politics, then anyone who dissents ceases to be a decent, respectable person. And once that happens, um, you know, people resort, uh, if, they're, if they're resisting, others resort to violence against them. And that's what we've seen. Do you think, uh, it seems to me that if uh, Trump is re-elected or, or if he is just, just elected, just re-elected, you know, um, there is a possibility of real, uh, real civil convulsion. Do you think that is overstating it? Well, I think I should first say that I think it's a complete fantasy to think that if he is not elected, that Trump will try somehow to stay on. Now, you hear sensible um, people in important positions in American society, in the university, in journalism, and elsewhere in politics, saying that this will happen. I think that's absurd. Yes. And um, I don't believe there's the slightest prospect of it. And if it were to happen, um, he would simply be ignored. Uh, the, the, if you give orders as president, which are illegal, and people ignore you, um, then you cease to be president in a more far more fundamental way than if you simply have not been re-elected. So I don't believe that. Your point, would there be problems if he is elected? Frankly, I doubt that. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, the, the claim of rioters, the claim of protesters, the claim of people who can assemble large numbers of people in the streets, whether it's for a riot or whether it's for a peaceful protest, their claim is we, the, this shows we have the support of the people. Um, if they lose an election, an election absolutely trumps any number of demonstrations. Uh, I'd say we know that from uh, 1968, when um, everybody thought that all of the left and the trade unions said uh, they represented the people, the bourgeoisie responded with their own demonstration. And in the following election, de Gaulle won a landslide victory. And the party that represented the students most um, faithfully, that party got about 4% of the vote. Now, you're painting a somewhat different scenario. I, I know that. Um, and of course, it's a very close election. You have, may have all kinds of allegations. But my feeling is that in America, uh, there is a solid common sense for most people. And if Joe Biden uh, loses, I think he will say to his supporters, you may be upset, you may be angry, but we'll win next time. I may be wrong about that. Um, he looks at times to me a bit too much like 
uh, Kerensky in 1917, <laughs> yeah. a man who might be swept away um, by his own supporters and by more ruthless operators on his own side. But um, that's speculation. I do believe that he wouldn't, in fact, voluntarily, in a sense, revert, try to get an election uh, overturned by violence in the streets. I think he'd be horrified by that. Yes. Do you think that uh, you mentioned there about, uh, you know, liberal people being slightly perplexed, bewildered by this new kind of, uh, uh, well, we could call it sort of totalitarianism in a way, cultural totalitarianism. I think that's a, a, a term that Melanie Phillips used. Um, it's almost like they have spawned an, a, a more extreme version of themselves, would you say or not? Well, I do think um, liberal people are perplexed by this. Um, generally speaking, what ha what happens on such occasions, this would be my view, um, I think, well, I think it's also Dostoevsky's view, if you read his marvelous novel, The, 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 the Possessed, um, is that liberals um, make concessions to revolutionaries, which they think um, are, are enough to keep the revolutionaries satisfied and to keep society more or less stable. They have good intentions. Um, but then having, having said, um, the, having in a sense assented to the principle of the revolutionaries, they then find no way in which they can stop moving in their direction. And um, I think, for example, if you say black lives matter, not because they do, but because you're assenting to the, that slogan as a representation of a kind of a new revolutionary America. If you say that, well, if you're a corporation a CEO, if you're a university president, whenever a new demand is made, you'll be told, well, you said that. This is, a, we're implementing it here. Uh, are you a hypocrite? Are you a traitor? Um, and, and I think that again and again, people of decent feelings on the left find themselves dragged along in one of these um, terrible, um, uh, and, and, well, epidemics uh, of, of uh, revolution. And I, my own feeling is that, um, that th this will not happen. It won't happen this time. Um, but let me give you another slope, or rather another idea. Um, the idea that justice in a multiracial society is represented by the idea of pro proportionality. Yeah. If you have 50% whites, 25% uh, blacks, 25% Hispanics, all institutions should somehow um, be, uh, include that breakdown. And then you get people saying, well, that's not true for parliament. No, and that ha that's not the representation there. Well, of course, um, uh, when you vote for, for a, 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 in an election, um, you, you can never get from a free vote of um, in 650 constituencies, you never get a free vote, people electing an exact cross-section representative of the whole society. So increasingly people think that um, something is unjust if you don't have um, an absolutely, um, as I say, cro representative cross-section in any institution, might be the BBC, for example. Um, um, which, um, um, unless the representation um, has an underrepresentation of the majority, then they don't mind. They don't yeah. think that's a problem.
just as they don't really mind about white boys at school, white working class boys at school. They don't worry about the fact that all of the institutions that are designed to produce a more representative um, Britain never seem to be worried about social class. Uh, that's never a big factor compared to ethnic and gender uh, considerations. Now, I think all of these considerations are worth thinking about and worth doing something about. But you can't accept a proportionality, um, ethnic and gender proportionality, as an overriding principle. Otherwise, you undercut and you discredit every institution in the world, in the country, because none of them are ever going to be precisely proportionate. It's uh, well, it's it's basically equality of outcome, isn't it? As opposed to equality of opportunity, in, in a way. So it somehow you know that, as you say, the only way you can justify yourself is if you have this outcome. Well, that is right, and it's fundamentally, by the way, uh, literally a Soviet uh, concept. I mean, obviously, the Soviet Union was not a democracy. We all know that, and they knew it themselves. But they wanted to claim the mantle of democracy. Uh, and so what they did was um, they tried to ensure that in all the institutions they controlled uh, of the society, that there was, um, were necessary, ethnic proportionality, gender proportionality. Now, they didn't do a very good job of that, but they... Um, but they did in, in they did try to make this claim so that uh, as um, Anthony Daniels wrote um, Theodore Dalrymple wrote um, in um, uh, one of his uh, books about this one of his articles in the Soviet Union all minorities dance um, wherever you went they were always going to give you um, a kind of folkloric um, uh, display in order to show how varied and uh, multi-ethnic the Soviet Union was. Um, and there were, um, they would had all kinds of institutions, paper institutions in which the, um, uh, you know, all of, every possible um, um, group in society was represented. But of course, they didn't, all those institutions were meaningless because they simply followed the instructions uh, of the Soviet uh, Politburo, essentially. Um, and um, and uh, so there were, all of them really were nothing little better than ventriloquist dummies. And, uh, and in a way, that's the aim of a lot of people on the left. They want to have any number of institutions um, which, uh, uh, which include all aspects of society in the right proportions, but they all want them singing from the same hymn book. So political diversity is the one diversity that that kind of revolutionary uh, theory is not interested in. Uh, it is, in fact, resolutely opposed to it. And that's one of the factors that's it's one of the things we're now seeing, well, in, in, in the riots in Britain, but more powerfully in the United States. Uh, you, you mentioned there the institutions. I mean, one of the striking things that's happened over the past, what, two months here since we've been having these protests and, you know, statues coming down, etc., is uh, a remarkable supplication on the part of whether it's the church or the police or the National Trust or whoever you like. Um, this does give credibility really to the idea that there has been a long march uh, through the institutions. And I, I know you very kindly, John, wrote the forward to our recent book uh, by Mark Sibyl, The Long March, 
um, but you've written about this for absolutely years, I know. And, and do you think that really that this, there's, this has some bearing on what we're seeing now, that in fact you've got an Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, who talks about going through the statues in Canterbury Cathedral and maybe revising them. Is this sort of, people are, people are quite bewildered by this actually, but I think in a way we're not so surprised, are we? Um, well, I think that the, um, the, the um, all of the Christian clergy are subject to a loss of faith. Now, the loss of faith, if you're a Victorian poet, philosopher, was a profound, wrenching experience which changed your life utterly and often rendered you wretched and unhappy, or sometimes, of course, giving you more a feeling of greater power as you approached uh, the world with new, completely new religious eyes. But that's not the way faith uh, is lost, it seems to me, in the modern world. It gradually um, is, uh, it suffers a gradual erosion and is replaced by a semi-faith or some other religion, some cases, some other religion entirely. But in the case of Christianity, it's replaced by um, what I'd call uh, a post-Christian humanism, um, humanitarianism rather. Um, now, obviously, we all have human, we all want ourselves and others to have humanitarian feelings. But the difference between a post-Christian humanitarianism and between um, uh, Christianity and re Christian realism is that the Christian, if he was, pays attention to what his faith has taught, realizes that you can't eliminate evil in life. And um, consequently, um, when you're helping others or when you're trying to change society, you've got to be aware that some of your allies are not anxious to do what you're anxious to do, but they want power at all costs. And the second element in that is, um, if you're, you're aware of your own uh, weaknesses, I think, and, and or should be, and, um, and you're subject to, um, uh, because you've, you've you're losing your own faith and searching for something else. Um, when you look at self-confident uh, ideologies that you think um, are the children of your own religion, you're very apt to overlook their faults, to go along with them, to think somehow, well, back 40, 50 years ago, people said things like, um, communism is Christianity in a hurry. And, um, and we're seeing something similar uh, in that now. Uh, and, and ordinary Christians and people who are not Christians, but regular um, people who've got a um, Christian culture, but no Christian belief, and, and don't reflect much on these things, they tend to be swept along by a kind of sentimentalism um, mm. of goodness, which, which doesn't reflect reality. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't, um, it doesn't phase up to the reality that um, some of the political movements are not uh, intent on bettering humanity, but intent on seizing power and imposing a false uh, virtue on people, which is what the Soviet Union was like. Mm. Uh, you, on this uh, subject of, of a long march of the left to the institutions, you, you, you coined a phrase a while ago, John, the lumpen intelligentsia, I think it was. And can you explain what you meant by that? Well, we all know, of course, that the intelligentsia in, uh, 
in um, society it tends to be the group of people which causes the most trouble not necessarily a bad thing of course but it but um, they are they tend to be uh, particularly um, today but in in earlier societies they tend to be um, university educated people who haven't got a position commensurate with what they think uh, graduates should have and um, and they're the people who are at the forefront of many of the radical movements we see and that was true in the past in, in, in other countries as we when in britain we used to look at countries like egypt which had large numbers of unemployable graduates and we could see the damage they were causing to the society because they were unwilling to do the kind of jobs that a country like egypt could offer them at that time um, and it's not just egypt but you could say that about european countries too now um, there's another group of people in society, I think, who are very important. And um, in traditional society, what you have, you have some, what might be called uh, the foreman class, the, the junior manager, um, the, 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 the policeman, the social worker, the people who represent um, the established ideas of common sense in dealing with the rest of society and who respect such things as respectability um, and, and deplore such things as either semi-criminal behavior or behavior which um, other people would regard, I mean, drunkenness, um, uh, mild forms of violence which you might not worry about, but nonetheless dangerous. Um, now, these people in, uh, no longer represent uh, those kind of ideas in our society uh, because they've been uh, we have what I I call a lump of intelligentsia which is to say that's the part of society that in a sense administers and transmits the values of the leading figures in society to the mass of the population um, um, but in in a, in a form that represents the latest ideas in university and colleges and um, then you see this all the time now in with local government uh, and um, with, with the cops, for example, um, uh, are more, more intent on chasing down somebody who is tweeting out something racist on, uh, uh, on the internet than they are concerned about um, uh, protecting pe people from burglary uh, yes. or mugging. And so forth. But this is a standard thing, and I think that it's very interesting for a society when its when its foreman class becomes a kind of lumpen intelligentsia, um, people who've been um, who imbibed in an odd kind of form um, the latest radical ideas, and now um, impose them on the rest of society in a way that the rest of society can't quite understand. Why are why are the police behaving in this way? Uh, why are they now? Like the, uh, um, somebody called them the um, the police with what was it the phrase uh, oh yes the paramilitary wing of the guardian and um, and I think that that's, uh, that expresses something um, which is real. Also, I would say possibly teachers as well in a big way, you know, teachers oh, in primary school, secondary school. Yeah. Um, well, that's right, and, and, and of course, when you actually talk to people in those uh, in the positions with junior teachers and so on um, their actual grasp of the uh, the ideas which they passionately believe in and want to impose on their pupils is pretty thin i mean they're not we're not talking about 
people who are going to be professors of ethics. We're talking about people who've got a very vague set of notions which have been hammered out over 20 years in sociology and cultural studies departments and increasingly imposed, incidentally, on the hard sciences and, and, um, and the economics and elsewhere. These ideas, um, you know, the idea that um, only whites can be racist, for example, or that um, racism uh, is defined as something which somebody perceives as racist, those, um, those ideas um, are, are not the ideas that ordinary people come up with in a general way. They're ideas which are, you know, are imbibed as clever, brilliant, new insights but imbibed in a very diluted and half understood way. So that, as I say, when you actually have to grapple with these ideas in the talking to people, then they are very much skin deep. And, uh, and yet, of course, they're imposed on others in a, and we see that particularly, you know, in such matters as uh, the new gender, uh, uh, gender, uh, uh, fluid gender concepts. John, I mentioned at the beginning of the program that uh, you had been, uh, you knew um, Margaret Thatcher well and you were an advisor to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, her battles were largely economic ones, really. Um, and I wondered, you know, whether you would just uh, ruminate a bit. Do you, what do you think her reaction would have been to the cultural crisis that is sort of taking place now in Britain in America? I mean, would because I've been, and I know a lot of people have, very disappointed in the lack of voices that coming from the government. What what do you think her reaction would be? Um, it's always it's always a slightly illegitimate enterprise to predict what someone who's no yeah. longer with us would react to some such situation, um, and particularly a new situation like this. But I think we can get some clues. If you remember, uh, the most difficult year of her premiership was probably 1981, when you had um, demonstrations against her. She was more unpopular than any other prime minister had been in history. Um, she had to couple, uh, uh, she had to tackle uh, the fact that inflation was still rising, was resistant to her policies, and um, and there were demonstrations throughout the country in Liverpool and and uh, uh, from all the way from Liverpool down to um, Brixton. Now, um, what did she do? Well, she didn't launch a paramilitary response to them. Um, she was very cautious and sensible. Um, she essentially backed the police in a resisting um, riots. Um, she, in, she appointed a, a minister named Michael Heseltine, actually, to look seriously at the uh, what might be some of the social causes of this um, re rebuilding Liverpool and launching the Dockland scheme and so on, uh, making changes in society to make things better. And she did that subsequently in the middle, eight, the middle 70s, uh, sorry, the middle 80s with her third manifesto. Um, but, and, and so on. But she, in the House of Commons, at Prime Minister's Question Time, in her interviews on the television, she resolutely refused to say that the rioters had any justification for what they were doing. And, and um, she set her face like flint against that, against um, saying that these, are just, these riots are justified. She pointed out 
that the majority of people who'd been arrested for the rioting had not, were not unemployed. So unemployment wasn't the explanation for them. And many of them were in middle-class occupations, just as today, many of the people inciting and carrying out riots in both America and Britain are in fact um, um, middle-class and upper-middle-class white people, far more than they are poor and minority, poor minority black people. Indeed, um, they are the principal victims. So I think that very first thing you have to do is to say that you're, you're going to tackle what are perhaps practical reasons for the riots, practical problems that require um, reform. But you've got to be clear uh, that you do not accept the, these things could possibly be an argument for, um, um, for, for riot, for disorder, uh, for, for, um, for anti-democratic action. Um, and I think that the, 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 the role of a political leader, um, it, uh, political leaders very often, they have power to do things. But sometimes the most important power they have is the power of speech, the power of rhetoric, the power of defending um, the, uh, the legitimacy of their society, the legitimacy mm. of political authority. I think that that is something that has really been forgotten by an entire generation, including conservatives, unfortunately. And I think it has to be rediscovered um, in both America and Britain. To some degree, it's been rediscovered by Trump. But on the other hand, that's offset by so many of Trump's other blunders mm -hmm. that it's very hard to, to make him at the, you know, say that he's a good example of, of leadership in society. Um, he, in some ways, he is, but in some ways, he undercuts himself. I think uh, this is a point made actually during the recent uh, protests and uh, civil disorder that President Macron just was quite clear and said, this is French history, uh, for better or worse, it is not being changed. And that's all people really wanted to hear, John, here. They just didn't hear it, you know? Yeah. That, that is right. And, and I also think that um, you're going to have people uh, on your side, the side of order, so to speak, who are bad guys. I mean, I'm thinking here, uh, you know, neo-fascists and so on. Um, uh, I think it's important to distance yourself, but I think it's important that you don't actually treat people who are mistakenly, sometimes viciously, coming to the defense of order. Can't treat them worse than the people who are creating disorder in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I would have reacted somewhat differently with those ex-servicemen and others who came to protect Churchill's statue. I don't think I would have treated them from the word go. If they if they embarked on violence, yes, you have to uh, you have to defeat them and you have to control them. But I think the first instance you say, I understand why you're doing this. Um, you know, we're going to arrange for you to march down here, salute the statue, and march off. We're not going to have a row between you and others. I mean, um, I think that's important, and I think that um, sometimes the authorities want to demonstrate too strongly that they have no sympathy for the extremists of the right. I think that in those circumstances, what we've got to do is to make plain our disagreement with them, but at the same time say, as long as you, as long as you um, uh, express your opinions in, in a non-violent and respectable and respectful way, we let you do so, but then we want you to get on the bus and go home, and we don't want yes. lots of fights in the streets. 
Well, look, John, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, we've had a few attempts in the past which have not worked out. <laughs> anyway, the, because of a technological thing, uh, it has this time. Uh, thank you very much, John, for coming on the show. And uh, maybe talk to you again in a few months' time. Uh, around the time, maybe, of the, uh, around the time of the American election. That would be great. I would like that very much. But also, I want to say the... The book, which um, you invited me to write the introduction to, um, The Long March, is an absolutely wonderful book. I'm not talking about my introduction, but uh, about the, uh, the author's um, uh, very careful, um, interesting historical account um, and very sensible analytical um, uh, dissection of how so many of our institutions came to be under the control of people who have no passionate love of democracy um, and in, are trying to carry out a kind of revolution, um, well, in a sense, revolution on the quiet, in the shadows, and, try, and by the tactic of wearing us down, boring us to death, um, rather than the tactic of, um, in a sense, um, um, overthrowing society violently. Though, of course, some of their pupils are doing attempting to do just that. Thank you very much. Thank you for, for writing the forward to it, John. Thank you. Okay, uh, well, that's it. Uh, that's it for, uh, so what you're saying is this week, we'll be back uh, next week. Uh, please do subscribe, won't you, uh, in the meantime. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.